Welcome to the Wisdom Rising podcast. I'm your host, Lama Sultrama Aleone, and my goal with this podcast is really to open your own wisdom, to have your own wisdom rising, either through the meditations that I lead or introduce you to, or to the people that I interview that bring wisdom with them in their own voice, in their own traditions. So we look forward to raising our wisdom together on the Wisdom Rising podcast. And I'm so happy to share this with you. Greetings from Costa Rica, Jack. Hi, Lama Soltrim. Very happy to see you. Yes. And you were just here. I was. Yeah, in your beautiful home and the beautiful countryside where, yeah. where you're living for now. Just a week ago. So thank you for coming on to Lama Live. And I wanted to tell a little bit about how we first met. This is what I remember. And you're welcome to share what you remember. I remember us meeting in the faculty townhouses in Boulder, Colorado in 1975. At first I thought it was 74, but then I remembered I had both my kids and one was born in 75, the second one of, of three. One of my daughters kept escaping from my apartment and going upstairs to your apartment where I think there was a Buddha and she was making offerings to that Buddha or something like that. And then you brought her down and who's, whose kid is this? And that's how I remember us meeting. Yeah, I don't remember that. I just remember us meeting. The thing that struck me, you had come back not so long before from being in the Himalayas and studying with Abu Rinpoche. Mm -hmm. And I was just struck by the intensity of your dedication, that there's some way in which, you know, it was an enthusiastic and a great meeting. And I'd been, of course, looking at some of the kind of texts and things you were studying and the equivalent in the Theravada tradition. And I thought, wow, really, in, really a full into this with so much dedication and enthusiasm. And from the very beginning, it was really inspiring and beautiful. Thank you. And you haven't changed. I'm kind of stubborn about Dharma. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other thing that we shared in common was both having been monastics. Yes. And fairly recently non-monastic, figuring out how are we going to land this precious thing that we encountered in Asia in two different traditions in the West. Yes. And I think that that's been our koan in a way for our, our lives. And we've both done it in somewhat different ways. Yeah. And I think in a way it's also the koan or the question that Buddhism has carried over these millennia is the connection between the monastic life and the lay life and how does that fit together with the benefit of these teachings. Yeah. And I'll tell you one tiny story, which is from the Theravada tradition and the original way that monks and nuns lived for a long time before it went to different climates like Tibet where the rules changed. The most important rule for monastic is not the rule of celibacy, and it's not the rule of, you know, simplicity of owning very little. The rule that 
creates the monastic life as it was around the time of the Buddha and for thousands of years since is that a monastic, a monk or nun, is not allowed to eat food unless it's placed in their hands within one hatabat, one arm's, half an arm's length, that day by a lay follower between sunrise and noon. Otherwise, you don't eat. You can't keep it food. You can't grow it. You can't cook it. And what that means is from the very beginning, the monastics just can't go off and live by themselves and make some life separate mm -hmm. from the community of human beings they grew up in, but that they are absolutely intertwined and that they had to have a mutual benefit that people wanted to support the monastics because they were benefit. And I remember as a, as a young monk walking through these remote villages on the border of Laos and Thailand, you know, that didn't have electricity yet, people didn't have cars, it was very much the old ancient way of living. And people would get up in the morning, even in the dry, poor season when they didn't have much food, and come and make an offering into our bowls as we walk through, as if to say, you so inspire us and matter to us as human beings that we'll take the little food we have and share it with you because this is what makes our life meaningful and brings joy to our lives. And it was this beautiful interrelationship. So it's been part of the spirit of Buddhist teachings from the very beginning. Yeah, and, and, and Milarepa said the, the merit of the person who takes care of the yogi on the mountain is the same as the merit of the yogi practicing on the mountain, that that interdependence, it's similar, but this would be somebody in a long-term retreat and probably visited maybe once or twice a year by a donor bringing, bringing food like Tsampa to them, but without them, they couldn't stay there. Maybe that's an easier way to practice, huh? You don't have to stay in the cave. You just have to cook up some good stuff once a year. So I thought what we could do is maybe I could ask you a question and then you could ask me a question, something like that. And then sure. we can kind of see what happens. So you've been involved with the mindfulness movement and you've seen it go from the back forests of Thailand and into Google and it's buzzword now all over the world. And so I think people understand generally what mindfulness is, but I think it would be interesting to hear you define how, how you understand the difference, if there is one, between mindfulness and awareness. And maybe, you know, I don't know how you would translate those words. This becomes partly a matter of language. I'd, I'd, like to, I'd really like to keep things simple. You have the experience of most people of driving somewhere and being a little bit distracted and arriving and not remembering that you drove that whole way. People have that experience, it's quite common. Albert Einstein said at one point, if you can drive safely while kissing a girl, you're simply not giving the kiss the attention it deserves. So we have Again, to keep things simple, because it's how do we actually live in our life, and more than the ideas and words about it. We have times when we're not very present. We're doing things, but we're doing it on automatic pilot, or reacting in habitual ways, and so forth. 
you could say we're kind of inattentive or lost, but we're still living our life, and that can be a lot of the time. And then there are times when we say, even, in, you know, oh, I got really lost in that. You know, it can be reactivity or it could be something that you got engaged in. And it's as if you step back, as we did in that meditation, and you become the loving witness of it, the awareness of it that says, wow, look at that. This is what's happening. And I don't mean in some fancy way at all, but it's almost like waking a little bit from a spell. And we live in the spell of our identity and just doing our things, and I do it too, and then go, oh yeah, here's this amazing human life, and there's a kind of waking up from that. And as we do this, we shift our identity from being the one who, the body or the feelings or the reactivity or the mind, to being more the, the loving awareness itself, the loving witness of it. And that is the gateway to liberation. So that's a, that's a big answer. And a little answer is that if somebody says they want to, could I have a little attention, please? Attention is not a small thing. When you gaze at or meet a person and give them your full attention, it's a huge thing to be met. When you tend to something and give it your care, as we did in the monastery in these ways, it's not a small thing. It engages us in a beautiful way in the, in the world itself. Mindfulness can get very close up like a zoom lens and you can be completely present with the smallest thing. It can also zoom out to be vast and you're still the loving awareness of it all. In every case, it means not being lost or identified, but becoming more the loving awareness itself. Mm-hmm. Who is aware of the loving awareness? That's just mind trip, that question. You know, who is, who is, who is, and who, who's aware of the one that's, a, that's a, it's, it's an irrelevant question actually, because it's made of thought, you know, and people say, oh, I was aware, and then I was aware that I was aware, and then I was aware that I was aware that I was aware. What that is, it's a, it's a succession of thoughts. Yeah. We are, consciousness we are awareness and it's all created in consciousness yes i think what i was trying to get at with my relevant question yes was the watcher there was always something in meditation of being deep in meditation and then that question of the watcher the one the one who's having that experience of loving awareness. And then for me, looking at that, looking toward that, even as a question, opened up something deeper. Because in the turning toward that question, for me, it went into a deeper state of non-duality, if you will, or inseparability. I think what you're describing is just what Ajahn Chah's teacher told him to turn his attention from the experience back to the one who knows, to the knowing, to the awareness itself. That sounds pretty much identical to what you're describing, and it's the same thing in Zen practice, where you have the question, who, you know, what am I, or who am I, and then you turn your attention back to see 
And of course, what you find is not a self. You find this empty, open, vast field of awareness itself that's also got love in it because it contains everything. As Nisargadot said, wisdom says I am nothing and love says I'm everything. And between the two, my life flows. Yeah. And in that moment of turning to the, the knower or the watcher, there's a moment of not knowing, of a complete openness in, in the moment of turning. Yes. And remaining there without clinging to that or trying to recreate it, that to me is a deep state of awareness in the turning in the, in the, in that moment of turning it, and it has a kind of curiosity in it you know oh and then there's just presence yeah just present the presencing so maybe now you ask me a question yeah i do i want to ask because people bandy about the word enlightenment and i've heard you use it what do you sense as the goal when people come to practice, do the practices you teach and so forth, what, what is, what's the purpose? What's the goal? Well, there's lots of layers of, of my answer to that. Sometimes people just want a moment of relief or some freedom, let's say, with a practice like feeding your demons to enter into a relationship with a part of ourselves that we fight against. But I think your question is, is, is deeper than that. It's really what, what are we talking about when we say enlightenment? In the Tibetan tradition, there, in many texts, they say beyond samsara and nirvana, beyond samsara and nirvana. As a, and then I was like, well, wait a minute. I thought nirvana was the goal. But then I realized in, over the years thinking about that, that nirvana is a concept the way we think of it. It's not actually nirvana. It's a concept, as is samsara. And so if we're beyond samsara and nirvana, we're beyond both of those concepts because we can get sort of fixated at getting to nirvana and getting away from samsara. And I certainly, you know, I, I, I did that. I, I did that as a nun. I was like, I'm, I, I want to get away from samsara. And... But it followed you. It followed you wherever you went. Yeah, it didn't really work. But I had that idea. And and then I was noticing yesterday, actually, I've been translating these ancient Dzogchen teachings. And I noticed how often they use the word ni me. It keeps coming up. And it means not to. And thinking about how not to is not the same as one. Because... Not two takes you to that place of openness. If you say one, it becomes a thing. And so I think my definition of enlightenment is returning to our true nature, our, our deep, vast, open, loving being, which really has no center and no fringe, no boundary. That's another thing that was in this text again and again. No center, no edge. And so finding a way into that, I don't even know what to call it, except 
it it is aware it has awareness it all awareness participates in it even grasping awareness is part of it but finding a way to go into that vastness and and stabilize that awareness while still holding the fact that you have to stop at a red light or a shila you know the ethical conduct but those those relative kind of things that are are important at a certain level but at the same time holding a presence of that vastness so i i think that's how i would define it and also compassion is really part of it because when you're released from the two from the fixation on self which means there's other then suddenly you're much more aware of the suffering of others and and I don't mean boundaryless in the non-healthy psychological sense I think that might be an interesting thing to talk about the that difference of of uh, compassion and and unhealthy boundarylessness but unawareness of others when your own agenda isn't there so i think that that's a that's how i would define it thank you beautiful when people come to practice over the years with me and over the years also the language and way i hold or describe it has changed first of all i remember myself that the buddha lived for 45 years after his enlightenment wandering around india taking food having conversations being with people who had conflict with him getting sick all in nirvana so the notion that nirvana is somewhere in the you know himalayas or somewhere in the, it's just you know it's a kind of some deep misunderstanding that nirvana is either here or you know or or doesn't it's not my own experience when people come what i want for them is in two words and for myself is freedom and love freedom means whether they're in meditation or they're there as a person in a family or community we can get really reactive and caught up and frustrated and angry or grasping or needy or mistreating of ourselves judgmental and all of those different constructs that are really a contraction of the heart mind they have underneath a kind of grasping of self of who we are separate from others there's a really simple freedom that happens and it starts when you sit and meditate and your fear or your anger or your longing or love or even the bliss comes and you get it you see yourself caught in it and then there's this shift to say oh yeah you become the loving awareness of it and you're no longer at its mercy those patterns they're there and some of them have intelligence in them so you can learn but you're not caught there's a kind of freedom and then that freedom expands as you describe to rest in a vast timeless neither center nor boundary the vast loving awareness which is the ground of being the primordial ground maybe that's the best translation mm-hmm. for, for jit term the primordial ground from which everything comes and can't be separated they're mm-hmm. actually in that understanding when you feel it there's no inner or outer there's just experience arising inner and outer is also not not true and then the other part of that is the ability to love and you know i can say in you and so forth that 
consciousness is loving awareness because love contains and connects all things. But I'm, again, in a very specific way, just as people come and they're caught up in things in their life and they can find a greater freedom and less identification and attachment. The question is, can I love well? And the ability to connect and become that field of love, no matter where love, even with joy and sorrow and praise and blame and gain and loss and birth and death, that freedom and love then come together. And so as I practice or as I watch and work with people who are practicing, I'm interested in the ability to love blossoming in them, the sense of freedom no matter what happens blossoming, and they're becoming that, they become the loving awareness itself. That's somehow how I might answer it. And that's a different language than enlightenment because enlightenment is a very confusing word in people's minds. And it feels like there's some place to get to that's like enlightened retirement, okay? Like there's a path and at the end there's this place. Yeah, so this is exactly. So this is much less the path as someplace else and the actual being. And yeah. if, you're, if you're doing these different practices, and there's all kinds of practices, if they're leading to freedom in yourself and in relation to the things that this human incarnation brings alive, and if they're opening the gateway to become love, they're working, they're mm -hmm. good. So the Buddha talked a lot about attachment and the problem of attachment encouraged monasticism, although also had respect for the lay community and the, and the lay path, but really talked a lot about the sort of problem of relationship, the problem of attachment. And so I wondered, you, you also have a degree in psychology and you know the importance of healthy attachment. And so how, how, are you, how do you sit with those two things? So on a superficial level, there's just a confusion of terms because the meaning of attachment in the Buddhist teaching is different than healthy, healthy connection or healthy caring. And those words just get confused. But then you're asking something much deeper, Sultrim, which is the Buddha, at least in the myth and the story, who, who the hell knows what actually happened, left his wife and, his, and then he started an order and he, he invited lots of other people to leave their families, at least as the myth mm -hmm. and the story is told. And remember, the story is told by monastics. So you also have to know that the record of it, which was oral for 500 years, was kept by people whose investment was in that stepping back from society. So they might have privileged that as well. My deepest experience and, and uh, is that that can help some people to ex extricate themselves from all the cares and responsibilities. But the freedom really doesn't matter what you're wearing and doesn't matter what community you're in. And Lord knows I've been in, or Buddha knows, or whoever it is, uh, monasteries where there is jealousy and infighting and conflict and, and so forth. You don't get away from human beings and being human. So there's a different and much deeper level meaning of freedom. And it's really the freedom of heart that's possible for us. And it's so beautiful to discover this independent of you can be in a family or you can be like my teacher, Mahagosananda, the 
he was nominated for the Nobel Prize eight or ten times. He was the Gandhi of Cambodia, and all 19 members of his family were killed, his temple destroyed, and he became a beacon of love. He taught tens of thousands of people that verse hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. And for decades led these walks. People can't go back to their villages without reclaiming their hearts and the land they lived in. So they would take every step they would recite, hatred never ceases by hatred. He was a monastic, but his connection with the land and the people was, was really the connection of love. And in a way, that's the game. Mm-hmm. And wherever that works for you, to find that kind of love, beautiful. And if it's, you know, you want a simple life, lovely. But underneath it, it's to find that inner freedom, that ability to love. So I just, we just have a little bit longer, but I wanted to follow up on that question and ask you personally, I think in your life, uh, I've, that you have evolved into a deeper appreciation of the gift of relationship and the, and the challenge of it at the same time. So I'd like to hear you talk about that. Like, is that true? And, and how, how do you connect this to your practice? Oh, thank you, dear, because it's a great question. And I, I'm, I've seen you in love relationships and so forth as well. When I came back from the monastery, and admittedly, I was still quite young. I was in my, still in my 20s after the first five years I spent in Asia. And I had felt in meditation all these experiences and things came to, and then becoming the loving witness, as Ajahn Chah, Chah taught, the one who knows, and much more compassion and love. And I thought, oh, now I'll go back and live that in the world. And then I got into an intimate relationship with a woman I'd known before. And all my old fears and habits and neurosis reappeared because there was no place in the monastic life for them really to come out. And I was shocked. It's like all the old clothes were in the closet and they fit perfectly and they were very tight and it was really painful. I thought, whoa, you know, I did all this inner work and and now I get into relationship. And remember, I like to tell people that when Buddha and Jesus went home, both of them, they had trouble with their families. So it's not just me. It's part of human life, right? And so I had to learn, and this is partly the way that we do learn as human beings. It doesn't transfer naturally from, oh, I have this in meditation and now everything's going to be hunky-dory. You can have an Olympic-level athlete who's aware of every sensation in their body who's an emotional idiot. You can have a physics professor who knows, you know, quantum physics and she's a Nobel laureate and, you know, she can't find her shoes or her. So there are these different dimensions of body, of feelings, the second foundation of mindfulness of mind, and then of relationship. And each of them requires the same kind of attention. So I was horrified to see that all that meditation <laughs> hadn't changed. And I got into therapy and I thank you for that. It really made a difference. And I, you know, early on when I was training as a psychologist, as I was also beginning to teach, 
and I talk about how they complementary because good therapy is like mindfulness out loud and practicing with another person looking at the ways we get identified and lost and what it means to actually see what's true and love in the midst of it and I was castigated by colleagues and so forth that's low-class Dharma you know the meditation and the real thing that will take care of everything now it's changed as you know in the West certainly and I could probably give you the names of the therapists of most of the great Western Buddhist teachers that I know, because it's helped them. And that, that dialogue of heart that happens in the best of it, in which you give voice to the ways that you get entangled, and someone shines a light of awareness that says, oh, can you see it this way? Can you feel this? It's made a huge difference. So this has been a lifelong learning had a very long marriage and some of it was beautiful and some of it was neurotic, honestly, clinging in my own issues around unworthiness in relationship and neediness and all these different kind of things. And now for the last dozen years I've been with my beloved Judy Goodman, who I've known for 50 years, and we both practiced together for a long time and taught together over the years. And it's different. There's some way in which I, as you say, I have learned to see the ways that I was clinging or afraid or, you know, in different ways caught. And we have such a loving relationship. And a lot of it is that evolution that I want for everyone who listens, that it's possible to have a free and loving relationship. And I, I, I see it in you too. It's a beautiful question for us. And that goes back to that question, you know, did I love well? Can I love well? We can. That's the beautiful thing, is that we can. And how precious that is, having, having loved and lost and known how devastating that was for me. And then trying to deal with Buddhist things about, you know, like some other lamas were like, Mama, it's impermanence, you know, get over it. And I really felt like the grief was a way of uh, honoring the depth yeah. I had experienced. And I remember talking to you, actually, I don't, you probably don't remember this, but right after David died, you called me and I said, oh, it's okay. You know, he did what he was meant to do. He was with us and and, and now he's in a, another place, it's okay. And you said, well, you feel that way right now, but you're going to go through a lot of different stages with this. And I thought about that a lot afterwards because I definitely did. And I don't know who said this originally, but I've heard it recently that the price of loving deeply is that ultimately there will be separation and and possible death there is a price there yeah another way to put it just speaking of grief because it's an honorable thing as well is that the depth of the grief is the depth of your love that however deeply you loved there will also be grief people grieve in so many different ways and kind of put a spiritual ideal on top of it about how somebody should grieve you know, or how long it should be. And it's like telling somebody how they should breathe as its own way. And to hold all that and say, thank you. Thank you for caring so much 
for being, we're in a human incarnation and we need to respect it. There, this is mysterious and here we are. And thank you, dear heart, for carrying it all, for carrying the, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, mm -hmm. the ocean of tears and the unbearable beauty of, of this world. And that is really the meaning of love. I want to thank you, Sultrim. We have known each other for something around 50 years, you know, half a century. And again, I just so much respect your original passion. And I'll use that word because it's positive passion for the Dharma and dedication and love and all the years of your practice and then offering it, you know, you, not only are you a Dharma sister, but you really are Dharma life, and you carried it for so many people. And you carry the salmon in a way that's really critical in a tradition that's been, you know, a wee bit patriarchal, one might say, with sarcasm, you know, heavily patriarchal. But you carry something that's a, that's a beautiful medicine of freedom for people and possibility. Thank you for your kind words, Jack. And our our friendship has been so important over the years and many different moments. It really has, as you know. And thank you for sharing yourself with everyone today and wish you a beautiful time there. And we'll take good care of Trudy down here until she uh -oh. comes Thank you for that. That's so, that's so important and sweet. I know she's right nearby and you are tending her as well as, you know, you and Michael just being a light for folks. So thank you, dear. You're welcome. Lots of love. Take care. Lots of love. Thank you, everyone, for being with us for this Wisdom Rising podcast. May it benefit all beings. And I'd like to take a moment to thank the production team of Wisdom Rising and also to let you know that if you would like further information on my work or the associated people who work with Tara Mandala, you can reach out to the Tara Mandala website, T-A-R-A-M-A-N-D-A-L-A dot O-R-G. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe.